I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Microscope. Today's guest is Claire Evans. She's the author of Broadband, a book about women and the internet and computers. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. I am just delighted to be here. Thank you. Thanks. So... Um, this is a little different than our normal episodes where we talk to people who are sitting at lab benches and, and working in labs. So tell us a little bit about your connection to the tech world and the internet and what it means to you. I am a professional spectator, basically. <laughs> I mean, I'm a writer, so I'm not in tech. I'm not a coder. I'm not a programmer. I don't have a technical background. My father worked for Intel when I was a kid, so I grew up in a technical household, we always had computers in the home for as long as I could remember, and I've always identified myself in relationship to them. I always thought a really great thing about computers for me when I was a kid was that I could share my love of it with my dad, because even though he was you know, more technical and I was more sort of poetic, we both got something out of it, because that's the great thing about computers, right? It's a machine, and it's also something that you can push symbols around on, so um, anyone's interaction with it is valid. I um that was a, very beautiful. I'm just yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Continue. I think that's true. I don't know. Um, but yeah. So I've been a tech journalist for many years. Um, I was originally more of like a science journalist, but investigating the spaces between science and culture, and trying to educate uh, the, so the lay public or the sort of more, the more sort of artistic leaning public, which was my community because um, I'm a musician professionally. Uh, I wanted to make I wanted to sort of make science beautiful to them as well and help them to understand um, how much of an impact it can have on our worldviews and on our, even on our artistic practice. So that's kind of where I come from. Uh, Does, yeah, the whole translating thing, which I do as a journalist, also um, is harder than it looks. <laughs> how did where did you learn the the tech and the and that to to be able to do the translation well? <laughs> a lot of research, a lot, a lot of research. Um, you know, there's there's probably a level of talking and writing about code that I can never unlock because it's not something that is one of the languages that I speak. But I try to read as many people who do speak that language to understand, you know, both the impulse of it and and how it feels to do successfully. Um, you know, I I'm a journalist, so I, I interview people and I and I read their stuff and I, and I go real deep uh, in the research k holes. And I find myself in a place where I feel relatively competent to not necessarily talk about the sort of the instruction set for doing this stuff, but more, you know, the cultural experience of doing it and what it feels like to accomplish something uh, in the tech spheres in, in relationship to everything else around you, if that makes sense. Oh, uh, yes, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my heroes, when I was like first cutting my teeth as a writer, which I was a blogger for many years uh, in the blog days. Uh, and I always really admired, you know, people like Carl Sagan, as nerdy as that is, because I love people who can talk about science and tech, but also put a flourish on it, you know, that lets people understand how significant it really is. And it's a lot harder than anybody actually thinks it is. Yeah, it's super hard. It's super yeah, hard. Lindsay's my official translator. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used oh, to no. really have this thing when I was writing about science in the early days where, you know, I was always contending with these differences in language, like the way that a creative community reads a word versus like a scientific or technical community reads a word. The corniest example of that being the word experimental, which, you know, if you're an artist or a musician, that means something. It means like the opposite of structure. It means something super freeform. It means something avant-garde. 
uh, and difficult, but <laughs> the word experimental means something very different if uh, you're an active, if you're a researcher, you know, that's, that's something that implies a great deal of structure, in fact, and, uh, and many controls and constraints. So there's all these weird language things that you have to kind of wiggle around and figure out words that uh, make sense for both sides in order to communicate. So, so tell us a little bit about broadband. Sure. Um, well, it's a history of computing and of the internet, but told through women's stories. Um, it's not like the comprehensive history of tech. Um, it's an examination of different important moments in tech history, the kinds of moments that have been mythologized a great deal in other wonderful, uh, more male-dominated books about this stuff. Uh, you know, the development of, of the early ARPANET, the development of the World Wide Web, the dawn of programming, you know, these big kind of important thematic changes. And looking at those moments in history and just trying to figure out where the women were in each of those moments and, you know, where are they concentrating? What are they up to? What part of this are they contributing to and how have they been ignored um, in other histories and, and just trying to reframe those histories. I've been telling people a lot that, you know, I, I don't want this book to be read as like an alternative to great man history in the sense that it's just trotting out a bunch of the, you know, the same old heroes. I mean, there's Ada Lovelace and Grace Hopper in the book, like legally I have to include them and I love their <laughs> stories, but I don't like that thing of like sticker collecting famous science ladies, you know, it doesn't tell the whole story to me and it's less meaningful to me to have this sort of perfect hero on a pedestal than it is to, you know, really understands like the circumstances in which some of this stuff gets done. Like it's cool. Ada Lovelace was a genius, but also, you know, she had, she was a drug addict um, and she was, you know, always sick. And she always, she, she had this weird relationship with motherhood and uh, she struggled a lot, you know, and the fact that she managed to do what she did in the time that she did within the context that she lived in is so much more interesting and so much more useful to me as a woman who wants to make it in this world. Like those are things I can learn from. And I hope that this book is full of that. My, that's what I tried to do anyway. So um, I have a whole, a whole lot of questions, but in this sense, like findings, they're obviously they're the main character ones, the ones that everybody can name if you, or maybe name if they try to rattle off women in these fields. But the, the sort of, I felt like the second half of the book was a lot of, of names I'd never heard of and sort of spheres I'd never heard of. Were those things that you've been bouncing around and you knew about? Or did you have to go digging and looking for side angles and different approaches to what was changing in, in the tech world to find I did a lot of digging. Did things. I did a lot of digging. I, I mean, I think for me, it was important to include the sort of baseline historical characters, you know, the early ENIAC programmers and, and, and Grace Hopper and stuff, because they set a framework and a foundation for sort of the other stories to bounce off of and to relate to, because there are a lot of themes that come up again and again, and it's interesting to see, you know, kind of where they originate. But yeah, the later stories, it's a lot of, you know, network and web stuff. And these are people that, well, it was really important for me to represent people who weren't necessarily working on the tech side, but were doing kind of cultural development and community building in early network spaces, because that's, to me, a very important part of developing a technology. It's not something that happens in a void or, you know, in a vacuum, I mean. It's not something that's isolated from from people's experiences. It's something that's completely embedded in people's experiences. And so I wanted to feature people who maybe would have not been included in more rigorous you know, tech-type histories just because 
what they're doing is, you know, making cool websites in the early web and, and building communities of people that have, a, you know, a, a shared sense of mission and identity uh, in, in new spaces and networked computing. You know, those are things that they're, they're technical, but they're cultural, too. And I'm interested in that user oriented aspect. Um, but, you know, a lot of these people I found through, you know, they would be mentioned briefly in an article or in the footnote of something. And then I would track them down and ask them what their story was and then ask them to tell me who else I should talk to. Uh, you know, journalism, basically. Right. <laughs> were they surprised when you called them up or they're like, oh, finally, Somewhere, someone's talking to us? Somewhere. It's interesting. I mean, with some of the early web characters, like the people that comprise the chapters that take place in, in the dot com years, they were all kind of rock stars in the first wave, like in the early sort of media's attempt to grapple with you know, the emergence of the web, they, you know, there were a lot of magazine profiles written about like trendy cyber people in the nineties. And a lot of these people were, were really famous for just being cool and online. Uh, so they'd already kind of experienced a lot of interest in them. And then that, then it had dropped off for a long time. So it was an interesting kind of conversation to have because it was like, you know, trying to understand how you can, you can be a star in one moment and then your contributions can sort of be isolated to that moment in terms of how they're recognized and then and then a lot of nothing for a long time. But everybody, I mean, every single person I emailed for this book, in every, in every aspect of it, every single person said yes. Because, you know, there are many stories there that people have been, I think, waiting to tell and wanting to tell. And it was honestly all I could do to you know, like get them down on paper fast enough. How long did this whole process take you? Uh, two and two and some change years, maybe three years. When did you come up with the idea to to start this, or was it like you were accumulating some interviews in in your notebook and you went, I think I have something here. Um, <laughs> kind of. I I was yeah. I had been writing a series of articles for Motherboard, which is the site that I used to work for slash still work for sometimes about um, just like women in cyber culture, because I'm a real kind of nostalgist and fetishist about, you know, early 90s internet culture. So I was already writing some of that kind of stuff. But I was sort of doing it because I was in this period of my development as a human being where I started to feel somewhat disconnected from my original lifelong identity as an internet person. I had always, you know, really defined myself in relation to the internet for most of my adult life so far. Um, I always thought I was good at the internet, liked doing projects on the internet, but I don't know, I was getting to a place maybe three or four years ago where I started to feel that that was no longer true about myself and probably a lot of women. I felt more vulnerable and I felt less excited about expressing my, my complete self in, in online public space, more, more, more worried about retribution. So I was like trying to just find a, a I don't know, I was trying to position myself within some kind of context of women and computers. You know, I wanted to feel like it was a country that belonged to me as much as it always had. And so I went looking for, I went looking for all the grandmothers. And <laughs> the more I started collecting them, the more, I, yeah, I realized that there was a whole book there and that there were actually very many books there. I mean, I really don't want people to look at broadband and say, okay, you know, we're done. This is the complete history. There's so much stuff that I couldn't include in the book that I had to cut that I couldn't even begin to get to. Because the crazy thing about it is, even though we have all these tech books, you know, these classic tech histories that tell us the same stories over and over again, like, there's actually like a lot more stories that are 
just as interesting, I would argue more interesting than hearing for the 10 millionth time about Steve Jobs going to hire the guy from Pepsi or whatever. Like, I can't believe how much stuff there is. It makes me mad that there's that much stuff out there. <laughs> and I hope that many more books are written, not by me, but, well, maybe by me, but uh, also by other people. This is a little bit, um, I'll get, I'll have, I have a couple more specific things about the book itself, but um, sort of in general, so you started this research about two-ish some years ago. Do you think that um, readers, with with the whole Me Too movement going on right now, that uh, readers will have a different perspective? It was wild. book that you had... Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it's kind of hitting a, a nerve a little bit with some people right now. Like, people are eager to hear this story, I think, because of things like the Me Too movement. It's funny, in the process of writing this book, which, you know, writing a book takes time, there were many moments along the way where something would happen, like the Google memo or like some Gamergate thing where I would be like, oh man, do I put this in the book? Like, am I writing the stories that I'm writing in relation to this now? Is this the conversation? And the more that I tried to sort of think about how I would position my book in that dialogue, the more I was, I don't know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to let all that darkness in and I didn't want to be, I didn't want the book to be in relation, like in a, in a position of retreat or defensive of defense from that. I just wanted it to be like this positive thing that included good edifying stories that of course exist in a context similar to the context that we're experiencing today at various different degrees. But, you know, I wanted to sort of bring the light rather than uh, contend with the darkness. But I think these stories are super relevant to any conversation that we're having about women's role on this earth because, you know, there are things that happen again and again in this history that also happen again and again in all of our lives, and I think they'll be pretty easily recognizable. I, well, I saw you couldn't quite keep it all out with that. I think there was a comment you made about the the picture that just identified all the women mm-hmm. as women <laughs> or yeah. people, people oh, in the room. there's so much and then... of that. I mean, I, I can't tell you like how many times I've emailed, you know, I'll find like a picture on, I found a picture on, on the Computer History Museum website um, kind of recently for this period of the, in the 1970s that I was interested in people that were working on community memory. And there was just like a group of five people and all the men were named and then it was this unknown woman. And I, you know, I've been like trying to find <laughs> unknown women basically in every period of history. Um, that's like all I'm trying to do is find it's another book women. in itself. I know. Tell me about it. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite person? I feel like a lot of people have been asking me that. It's funny. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a lot of faves. I mean, I have the people that I think are going to be in my life for a while, like Stacey Horn, who's the uh, founder of a very early BBS online community in 1989. She and I met in New York last week for the first time in person, and we're we're total buds now. And uh, I see her as a lifelong like mentor and role model. I don't know if she sees me as as her mentee necessarily, but I'm I'm trying (laughs) to make it happen. But um, I really love, in terms of sort of a, a relationship uh, of, I, I relate very strongly to the women in the hypertext chapter, because I think they kind of think about the world the same way that I do. Uh, Wendy Hall and, and Kathy Marshall, but they're both these super interesting hypertext and um, hypermedia designers and researchers from the 1980s and 90s who, who just think about information in such an interesting way. And um you know, always see other possibilities for the ways in which we can connect information to itself, which is a fascinating thing. And I guess as a writer, that's something that I'm always trying to figure out. And they're the ones that mess with my head the most when I was writing the book, because I was, <laughs> you know, all this early hypertext stuff, it's all about, you know, you know, a, 
a facsimile of an index card containing information connected to other facsimiles of index cards. You know, that's what HyperCard was. That's what a lot of these early hypertext systems, how they navigated. And I would have these index cards in my office when I was writing with all my ideas for the book and the structure. And the more I would talk to these hypertext researchers, the more I was like, yeah, I can connect this to this. And I can make, I can draw this really obscure thread, you know, from, from the Victorian age all the way through to through the 1950s, and it'll all make sense. And I turned to my first draft, it was just all over the place, because I thought I was writing this, you know, networked hypertext uh, experimental novel. And then when I reorganized everything and made it chronological, I realized I had missed huge gaps in the history because I was so besotted with the idea of hypertext. <laughs> so I love the hypertext people, but they did break my brain. <laughs> you don't have one of these, like, you know, serial killer walls with yarn between the cards and behind I you? I definitely had some yarn. I had some yarn. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It was like a nice How pole, How low-tech to be high-tech. Yeah, well, totally. I mean, everything old is new again. No, well, that's true. Is there, um, I'm sure you've been asked this too, but it, it, while you were doing this research, is there something that sort of surprised you or, or stood out to you as something that just seemed out of out of context? Like, obviously, you've been immersed in, in the internet world and tech world for a long time so you sort of know most of this stuff but did something pop out to you going i had no idea this is how this worked or these people were involved the story that makes me feel like i have no idea the most is the jake feinler story which is you know well you've you've read the book obviously so i'm i'm explaining this to the wider public i suppose but um (laughs) you know she's this woman who ran the central information office for the internet for 20 years, which, you know, sounds like the secretarial job, but then the more you talked, I talked to her and the more I read the material around it, the more I realized that she was just running, like, she was the center brain, you know, information resource, like, interface. She was the interface for the network for such a long time because there was no interface. If people wanted to know what was on another computer on the network, they would have to literally call her on the phone and she would say, oh yeah, that's like Kevin's computer and he has these programs on it. It's mind-blowing to think about. And the fact that she was just super... Like, she's the most overworked person, I think, in history. The way that she (laughs) talked about her job made me break out in hives. Like, she was on the clock basically 24 hours a day, you know, answering phones, being accountable for all this incredible minutia, you know, like all the specifics of the host table for the ARPANET, you know, making sure that every single host had the right, you know, protocols and all their paperwork in order. And at the, at the speed that the network was growing, you know, exponentially, I am amazed she lasted that long. So she's, that's a story that blows my mind. And it's like, I've read, there's been so many histories specifically about that place in time, you know, the ARPANET days. And she's mentioned I mean, I think literally in one of the most famous histories as a footnote, only as a footnote, which is bonkers to me. I, I just got this, like, the feeling that if she hadn't been there at the, that time, it never would have happened. Or it would never have become what it was. For sure. For sure. I agree. Yeah, and how, how she took a vacation, who knows? <laughs> she retired at one point and then I think went straight back to work. She was part of actually interesting, fun fact, I don't know if I included this in the book, but she retired from the Nick uh, and then immediately went to work on some web stuff, and she was part of the team that installed the World Wide Web at the White House during, I believe... During her retirement. (laughs) Yes. She worked for NASA. That's right. She worked for NASA, like NASA's web stuff. And she installed... She, like, set up the web at the the White House. I think during... And they have not upgraded since. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. Um, So aside from, you know, the time that you spend writing books, um, what do you do... Every day. What do you do with your time? What do you do? Yeah, what do you do with your time? Uh, oh, boy. 
Well, um, t- today, nothing. But uh, other days, I'm, I'm a musician. That's been my day job for the last 10 years-ish. Um, I'm in this band called Yacht, which is a, ba- is a bad name, but it stands for Young Americans Challenging High Technology. So you can see it's somewhat still connected to uh, my life. But yeah, I tour and make records and have been doing that for a long time singer in a band it's something i always joke about that i'm legally or technically the lead singer of a band because it's of all the things that i do probably the thing that i am the worst at but (laughs) (laughs) i come from punk so you know i think there's spirit spirit um is important and that's what i bring to the table anyway yeah i play music i've been a writer for a long time and i do other like odds and sods around la but that's mostly it do it seems like even just with the name of your band, um, that the technology sort of plays an important part of your life in general. And, and there's a certain generation of us that, whether you want to call us Oregon Trail generation or not. Oh, um, I like that name. I've never heard that. I love that. What? You haven't? Really? No, I, don't no. make, I, I don't get credit for this. But it's it's those of us that like grew up with computers available, but not everywhere. Yeah, totally. Computer lab at school. So like... Computer lab at school, and you sat and played Oregon Trail, or I don't know, and you had maybe a Sega Game Gear or a Nintendo at home, but like you had dial up, you had your AOL CDs, or and you had you know Sierra Online or like any of those other like, but but it wasn't pervasive, right? You had to like it was a set act. You sat down at the computer for an hour in the middle of the living room, and you played your game, and then you were done. And then it wasn't until we were in college or adults that social media was even a thing. MySpace, I guess, existed before it, but we weren't like, we didn't grow up in an age in which your life was defined online. Yeah, you can't see this, but I'm nodding. Um, <laughs> I'm nodding. <laughs> I don't know. I, cause I like, I don't, I have trouble associating with like the millennial age bracket. Yeah. Cause I find, I find that I grew, I'm, I'm older than that in the sense that I didn't have people writing mean Facebook posts about me in high school. Like that's not a thing. Yeah. I always say that I'm old enough to sort of, have overlapped, you know, the pre-internet world and the early internet world. Like I remember a time before the internet, but I kind of, it's, you're right. It's more that I remember a time when the internet was something that had limitations. It was something that you clocked in and out of, and you had sort of like, you had a set experience with, you know, like running a program, you opened it, you ran it, then you closed it. And now I don't know where, I don't know where we close, where we open and close. I don't, I think we're always open. Do we? And Yeah. <laughs> We can't escape. But I, I just wonder whether you, like, sort of in that sphere, whether we look at technology and the internet differently than maybe someone who's just always had the tablet in front of them. As yeah, I think so. I definitely think so. I mean, I never, I never want to say that one generation has, you know, a better or more vaulted perspective on the reality of affairs because I'm constantly being blown away by how amazing people who are younger than me are. Uh, but I think in terms of sort of thinking about this stuff and – you know, it's why I wanted to write this book because I felt like I had this, I had a view on it that was was it was an interesting view because you know you're either looking at it from from a position like my parents' generation where it's just they lived their whole lives without this thing and then it appeared you know it kind of bloomed in this massive way in a very relatively short time for them. Uh, that's one way of looking at it, and that's the way I think it has been looked at a lot. Uh, but I wanted to write something from kind of you know that 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 existed in a context that could sort of see and experience this stuff um, in a personal way. And that's, yeah, I think that's the generation that we are. It's our, it's our sacred duty to write about the internet. 
Well, and sort of following on that, how easy was it for you to get this book published? Pretty easy. I mean, I think I've been really lucky, knock on wood. I've, I, you know, when I started thinking about wanting to do this book, I ha- I have a good and nice and very talented uh, agent who really helped me craft the proposal into something that would be interesting to publishers. So I think I, I had a leg up there. But, um, you know, once the sort of proposal went out there, uh, there was a lot of interest in it. It seemed like something that people wanted or at least perceived there was a space in the market for. I never know if that means it's what's necessary in this world, but they, it was, it's, I think it was seen as something that would do well in the world. That's not why I wanted to write it, but I think the publisher, I think the publisher was like woman and computer. Yep. That sounds like something people want to hear about. Sold. Sold. It's like hidden (laughs) figures in the theaters right now. Yes. Can we have another one of those please? Yeah. Oh my God. Hidden figures. It's funny. Hidden figures. The book I think was already out when I started writing mine, but the movie came out in the middle of the process of writing this book. And it was so funny how, how much people would reference hidden figures afterwards. It like completely changed the conversation. And I think a a whole generation of people learned that women did computing work before the invention of computers for the first time. I think that was, that was like the place that most people in the world learned that information from. So it's, I think it's really changed people's perspective on a lot of things and sort of opened up a crack a little bit uh, into this idea that, oh, maybe this, this thing that we have pretty much set in stone is actually totally a construction and we need to go back and re-examine it because there might be a lot more stories there. Do you like having that comparison when people kind of say this is the hidden figures of, yeah, I mean, you hidden know, figures is incredible. Internet. Yeah. I would be, I should be so lucky. You know, that's a great, <laughs> that's, a, that's an incredible story told very well. Um, it's that's that book is sacred. I think. Uh, yeah. I, I can't wait for there to be lots of us in this clubhouse in the, in the computer lady book clubhouse. I hope there's, I hope there's many more. Do you have, um, you're, I, I want to look forward and, and futuristic and, and what you see being in the, in the tech space and, and music space and design space, which is sort of all merging together, really. Um, what you see in the future of what, what's the next I know I can't ask you what the next big thing is because then I should put money on it. But I mean, like, what's the next trend or the next thing that needs to be addressed or you think will be addressed or or will change? That is a very interesting question. And I think it's very funny to me uh, that I've written this book about history and people have been asking me a lot about the future, which... I am happy to think about, but I feel less qualified, perhaps. than. Well, we started with you saying what's old is new again and new and old again. So (laughs) really, you can just say that it's Ada Lovelace again and we're all good. I mean, my personal desire, (laughs) I think, is different from where the zeitgeist is going. I I am a a real aficionado of of old technology, obviously. And there's kind of there's grace and beauty in certain old technological conventions that I think perhaps uh, oversaturated you know, media, media saturated millennials might find kind of nostalgic in the same way that maybe people are attracted to vinyl or cassettes um, or, you know, acoustic live performance because it feels authentic. Like, I think that there's maybe, a, a, I hope that there's a movement of young people gravitating towards older models of being online uh, as, a, as a search for authenticity online. And maybe that means, you know, building their own smaller platforms and having more localized um, social communities online or more private social communities. I think you're already seeing that with stuff like Slack uh, and the popularity of, 
you know, group text versus public discourse on Facebook or someplace like that, where it's much more like, you know, the Agora where everyone is, is talking on a pedestal. I think, I think we'll see a movement towards smaller scale social media. That's my hope. I think we'll be, I think our society would be a lot healthier if that was a thing that happened. But I don't know. I've also spent the last couple of years reading about, you know, the early internet and the early web. And one, one of the things you really can't escape when you read about this stuff is the overwhelming optimism uh, from early adopters about what cyberspace represented for humanity. You know, all these sort of cyber utopian, you know, declaration of the independence of cyberspace. And we're all going to exist, you know, as a civilization of the mind. And there'll be no divisions of race, gender, class, or ability because we'll just be these avatars floating around uh, in this new world. And, you know, it's it's funny to read that stuff now because obviously cyberspace, whatever that is, is not utopian. But, you know, and I think what those people didn't anticipate is that there's no such thing as a new domain. Like, perhaps when something is emerging, you can kind of project a lot of your desires and aspirations onto it. But once you go there, you're just going to bring everything with you. And, you know, I think it's really easy to project onto new technologies. And I think we're, we're seeing that, especially with technologies that are a little bit opaque. You know, we're seeing that a lot now with AI and blockchain. You know, people are throwing themselves into these things with the, the imagination that they're going to remake capitalism or they're going to remake, you know, the nature of human intelligence and our relationship with the world that they can fix it, you know, and we, we don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't see those as, as opportunities to start over. I think, I think we need to really seriously reckon with what we've got and make sure that whatever we bring with us is, you know, it's, it's internal. It's like an internal change that has to happen, not a technological change. And technology can always, amplify the good and the bad so it's important for us to you know have our ducks in a row as a culture uh is that a trend report i don't know That's no no i know but i think it, I, I it makes sense i um i the amplification thing i think is something that's over that's missed a lot that like it does a lot of really good things but it also does a sort of equal and balanced version of a lot of bad things <laughs> Yeah, totally. You know, projecting I mean, things out that way. Everyone's talking about how the YouTube recommendation algorithm is radicalizing people, but like though, and that and that is true. But it also, you know, if you if you look are looking for an obscure disco song, it also radicalizes you towards even more obscure disco. You know what I mean? It's like it's it go it takes you down the rabbit hole of whatever it thinks you want, and in that sense, it's it's scary because it indulges us almost too much. You know, it's like. It feels, I don't know, like crass or something. Like we don't deserve to be to be catered to that extensively. Um, but it's also in, like it shows that it's you know these forces are really powerful and they can take us they can take us really hard into a really scary place or they can take us really hard into something beautiful. And I don't know if those things can exist independently of each other. Yeah. So I have one last question um, before we let you go, and that is, what kind of thing do you, would you love? you know, fictional, whatever that you would love to have wise, internet wise in front of you? Is it foldable e-paper? Is it, you know, um, an, you know, implanted something in your, in your brain that means you get the internet? I mean, what is it? Is there something like there that you'd love to have or do you want? No, oh, I've it? got a, I've got a whole list. <laughs> <laughs> I want, I want a computer that's like a burner that's just for text edit, you know, that's just for writing and has no distractions, but isn't like, an iPad with a keyboard or something. I like the idea of things not being so generalized so much anymore. You know, I think that part of the reason that the computer is such a, you know, seductive force in this world is that it, it can, you can start doing one thing and end up doing something completely different because it's just this infinite 
portal, but I like the idea of machines that just do one thing. So I like the idea of a writing machine, maybe just a straight up word processor machine in the old sense. I've heard of this thing. I think it's called a typewriter. Yeah. I know that's so that's such an affectation. I can't be that guy. I can't be that guy. I thought about it. I looked at I trust me, I looked at vintage Italian typewriters on Etsy while I was writing this book. There's a nice model by Olivetti, but I'm not gonna do it. I, it's too much. I also want everything, all the good stuff from Star Trek. I want a universal tra- uh, translator and I want a, a holodeck experience. And I I'm want, with you on that one. The universal translator thing, that's we're not that far from that. I know, I know. But it's it, it very, has very huge important. potential. All right, so so all these sort of instances in history where there are women kind of behind the scenes that don't get the credit for it, is that is that still happening today, you think? Yes. Don't you? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I just want to get sort of... Yeah, I think... T- I, I mean, I, the I, answer is yes, we do too, but you tell us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think, I think there's a, a large population of women working in, in a in all manner of disciplines who are doing the heavy lifting. Um, and the extent to which they're doing the heavy lifting is as yet unknown by the public. I believe that to be true. Um, and the hope is that we'll get past that. It seems like, I mean, it seems like a lot is happening right now and it's very interesting to be a spectator in this moment and to see people, you know, claiming their space, claiming uh, creating safety for other women around them and bringing other women up and, you know, doing really well. I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of good stuff happening. Uh, I think we're a really long way from where we need to be, especially in tech. But I'm hopeful. I want to have a seed of hope at the end of this conversation. So it's not just about, you know, algorithmic <laughs> bias and nightmare of the information superhighway. Well, I think it's happening. I think it's kind of uh, somewhat fractured or, or decentralized. Um, in that sense, but uh, I'm hopeful for the future. I mean, even from like the mo- from the most myopic perspective, I in the last seven days that this book has been out in the world, I get the sense that a lot of my audience may be earnest men who are just like trying to f- figure it out. Like I've gotten like I need so to read many- this to understand what's been going I've on. I've gotten like a lot of messages from very earnest men in tech who are like, "Oh, great! That's great! Great! I'm so excited about this book." And it doesn't seem like a put on. I think I think there's people that really want to be part of a change. And, um, you know, because it benefits us all, obviously. Um, well, Claire, that's all the questions that we have. Thank you so much for um, sort of humoring us and I answering our this. questions. I love um, this. Thank you for having me. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copycuts.